0: Welcome to a new episode of The New Unfiltered. This week, the summit is officially happening. I cannot believe It has been a year, a year since I pitched this idea to UConn, and the fact that it's actually coming to life this week is captivating to me because it reminds me how important patience is. Now, most of you who listen to this podcast maybe know me from the Radio Disney show or some other platform that you might have found me on. Maybe you've been following me from the beginning, but when I have these kind of moments, it reminds me that that journey towards becoming ultimately successful and the process of being an entrepreneur is really what you have to be in it for. You can't just be in it for the end game because now it's like a year of work to – have brought this summit to life, and the week is here, and then it's kind of like, okay, now what's next? And so I really thrive on staying excited about new things, and that's why I always say it's important for all of you to have your toes dipped in many different opportunities and pursue all of your ideas, even if some of them stand out more to you than the other ones, because you never want to just settle, even when you're successful. So today I've got the founder of, the founder of and uh, CEO of Creative Futures Collective, Jai Al-Attas, on the podcast. And I actually came across his whole mentorship th- program through Soho House. And that's a members-only club that I'm a part of in many different cities, but specifically my home one is Austin. And so for this upcoming summit, we are pairing mentors with mentees in person. And so I just wanted to know everything about how he started a company in high school, ended up selling it, and what makes him wake up in the morning so thank you so much for being on today
1: no worries thank you for having me i'm 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 excited to be here
0: you are so accomplished and so young and i know that off camera you kind of said that you had started this music record label and you're um you're not from america so your whole story and just background and how you even came over here is really fascinating so I would love to kind of start in high school were you the kind of kid who had a ton of friends because I love music like if if I was in high school looking back and someone especially a boy was like I'm starting a record label I would think that's the coolest thing ever
1: you know it's it's funny you say that because first of all I don't think I should say I had a ton of friends because if any of my friends listen to this they'll be like no you didn't you're a liar but no I had I had a bunch of friends but um I definitely thought that by starting a record label, it was going to help me get girls interested in me. Um, and it never worked, ever.
0: That's too cute. That's exactly because, yeah, kind of what it, I would think.
1: Yeah, I, I thought that was. I thought it was a cool thing to do um, because I wanted to be in a band, but I didn't have any musical talent. I still don't have any musical talent. So the next kind of, the next kind of path for me was um, starting a record label. And, and when I started it, I didn't actually know what that meant. Um, so I kind of had to figure it out as I went.
0: And how, when you even started that, did that idea even come to life? Like, so I know you were trying to get girls and whatnot, and that's great. But the thing I think with entrepreneurs is that the difference that sets entrepreneurs aside from people who just have ideas is the actual start of it. And to be in high school, how did you even decide what next steps to make?
1: Yeah, so I, I can kind of give like a truncated version because it was just kind of like this this series of events. It, it happened. It all happened very quickly. But basically, um, we had a we had a school carnival, a swimming carnival, which is I don't know if you if you call them that in America, but you know where everyone goes to the pool and they race each other. And a bunch of friends and I decided that we didn't want to do that because um, we were I think like fifteen or sixteen at the time. Um, and we were too cool. So there was this documentary playing at a, at the movie cinemas called Hype, which is a documentary on all the bands that kind of exploded out of the Northwest um, Pacific Northwest in America around the late '80s and early '90s. You know, most notably like Nirvana and, and Soundgarden and, and that whole grunge movement. So we watched this documentary, and and part of the documentary there's a huge focus on this record label called Sub Pop, which was the label that signed a lot of those bands. You know, put out Nirvana's first album, Bleach. And I was watching the founder speak and I was like, that's so cool. I want to do that. And pretty much the next day, um, I kind of roped two of my friends into this idea that we would start this record label. Now, like, you know, no one in my family um, was connected to anyone in entertainment at all. You know, my, my dad was a cleaner his whole life. He didn't go past eighth grade in high school. So he was, yeah, he's a cleaner. He's, he's still alive, but, um, his professional life was clean up. My mum was a well-educated woman, but she focused all her attention on indigenous rights in Australia. So we didn't make, we didn't have much money growing up uh, as a family and they knew nothing about entrepreneurship or starting businesses or the entertainment industry. Um, same as my friend. So I kind of coaxed them into this idea that we would start this record label um, and all it would take to do it is a thousand dollars because there was these music magazines, free street press as they as they're called in Australia, which at the back of it shows you like services um, that you can pay for. And one of them is like, you can get 500 CDs printed for a thousand dollars. So I was like, well, all we need is a thousand dollars and we can get 500 CDs made and we can sell them for $10 each and then we'll have $5,000. And that was that was it, that was the plan, right? I'd, I'd never done this before. Um, so the first thing I had to do when you know, starting a business was like, well, how do you start a business? Um, and this is also like, I'm aging myself here, but this is the year 2000. So like the internet was around, but the the internet wasn't like what it is today. Like not the, the, the rabbit hole of resources that Mm -hmm. we have. Um, So, you know, I think, I don't know how I figured it out, but I went to like the department of fair trading where you register your company name cost $125. um, And all of a sudden I had a I had a business. I had a company called Below par Records, um, and it was three of us. And I remember getting home from school because it wasn't like I had this idea for a long time. It was the day before, um, and I got home from school and I told my grandma um, who was at home, and I told her that I'd started a company and I started a record label, and she didn't. She didn't believe. No one in my family believed me, and I kind of then showed them the certificate, and i said, oh, that's "Okay, what are you going to do with that?" Like they didn't understand. Um, but that—that that was how it got started. It was a sort of movie a day before, the next day. Um, coaxed my friends into to joining me on the path and the day after we registered the company.
0: I think that that's so relatable as an entrepreneur. It's that idea, especially like I had my idea for my blog at age 12 and, and I didn't even ask, how old are you now?
1: I'm 37.
0: Okay. So back this probably, yeah, was the YouTube era, but I mean, when I started my blog back in 2011, I remember going home and even throughout the years with kids in school, it was always kind of this question of like, what is this girl doing? Why is she doing this? And I would say that any entrepreneur who does start something is going to face that kind of question from people. So if you're not ready to have people questioning your every move or trying to understand your idea, then uh, then you you can't be an entrepreneur because that's kind of the cool part of it is building something and everyone wondering what you're doing. So you then leave high school. And at what point then did you get approached to sell this record label? Because there must have been some time in between there to build up the company and whatnot.
1: Yeah, so basically, you know, and and just kind of to your last point, I will say that like we weren't supported um, by our friends when we did this. Like we were kind of outcasts because I think a lot of people didn't understand what it meant to... You know, to, to start a company, to start a record label. And I don't know if people felt threatened, you know. And I'm talking about the people closest to us, like our, our close group of friends. Um, eventually they all came around when they were getting free tickets and, and records mm-hmm. and stuff. But at the time, yeah, I don't know. They, it just wasn't like we had this, we had this really supportive group, super close to us. Other people were, other people were cool, but um as far as kind of like the in-between stages, so you know, it was probably from like, you know, we, we were lucky that we were young, so we were living at home with our parents. Um, we were lucky that we were living in Australia because, you know, Australia has like free healthcare, so your parents aren't worried that you know one thing goes wrong can, can kind of bankrupt the family. Um, so I was just and, and my my co-founders Matt and Mark, we were just able to kind of like live at home um, and literally earn no money while we while we built this label. And and some of us, not me, but some of us had um other jobs and and we're going to school I chose not to go to university I chose to focus full-time on the label it probably took you know like there was like little wins along the way like we'd put a cd out and all of a sudden like it would sell more than the last one and I remember the first band that we signed a banquet for amusement only you know I remember that they at the time were kind of like this small band but they were they were, they were doing really well in Melbourne I'm from Sydney they were doing really well in Melbourne and they were just about to tour with a band called Some 41, and then they're about to go on the Australian version of the band's Warp Tour. And they're two big, kind of like in that punk rock scene in which our label existed, were two kind of, uh, you know, big, big things happening. And we were able to sign that band. Um, and we ended up selling like, I don't know, 7,000 copies wow. of their EP. Um, and all on the road, we had no distributor. We were just selling these at shows. Like, I remember. On the first the first date of the Vance Warp Tour, it was in um, on the Gold Coast, which is about a ten hour drive from um, where I was living, and I was seventeen at the time, and I had no money. Right? I couldn't I couldn't just like fly up there. So I remember like I, I essentially found someone that I didn't know that well that was driving up there, um, and I hitchhiked for ten hours. Um, by myself as a 17 year old with 200 cds on me you know in in, in this guy's car and um end up like dropping it to the band and the band to sell them so it was just like this yeah i don't know just this hustle but you know kind of like little things like that were, were kind of signs that we were on the right path and, and we were we were doing things that were that were working and i remember we, we ended up winning when i was 18 we won this competition called the nescafe big break and you don't have it here in America, but in Australia, it was this big thing. And basically Nestle, you know, Nescafe would give these $20,000 grants to young entrepreneurs. Um, so actually you could be an entrepreneur or you could be like a, you know, a young athlete training for the Olympics or whatever it is, but it's, they'd have about 5,000 people a year um, enter this competition and compete for this $20,000 grant. And then the grants just there to kind of help you in whatever whatever parts you're doing. So we pitched the record label. We ended up winning the $20,000 grant one year when I was 18. Um, and we said, okay, we've got, we've got $20,000 now. That was, that was the first injection of capital that we ever had outside of the initial, you know, $1,000 that we all pitched in. And we decided that we were going to come to the United States, to America, um, and try and sign some American bands that we could, like, license their records for Australia. Now, I still don't even know how I even knew what that meant, to be honest, at the time. Like It's a long time ago. Um how or why we thought that would be a good idea, but we knew like all the music that we liked and that whole scene was happening in America. So we wanted to go over. So we booked ourselves, you know, three tickets. Um, we stayed on people's floors. We stayed in hostels where possible, obviously no hotels, like everything was done so, so cheaply. But we ended up signing two bands, um, licensing two bands that went on to be like pretty big bands in that scene. And they were, one of them was called Yellow Card um, and the other one was called Brand New. And at the time, they were small bands, but within the next kind of 12 months, those bands really blew up. Like Yellow Card had like a platinum selling record, brand new, went really big. And then that kind of filtered into Australia and we had the rights for them. So that really boosted us and that got us the attention of um, a major record company in Australia called EMI slash Virgin Records. And then we ended up doing like a a partnership with them where they would be able to like select an artist that we signed to go through. Um, their major distribution, which meant that, you know, all of a sudden we had like proper marketing budgets. We had, you know, a team of radio promo people that could take it in and really kind of take this up to the next level. And through that, we ended up like having a few hits, a few gold records um, with some of our artists. And that led to us being acquired.
0: Were you expecting through that process any of that to happen? Like, do you remember looking back if that was your end goal, or was that just something that really happened so naturally?
1: I think it was definitely an, an end goal because I think even like, you know, like there, there was this stigma. I don't, I don't know if the stigma exists anymore, but there was definitely a stigma with major record companies, um, in, in the, specifically in the punk rock scene, right? In the, in the kind of mid-90s, late 90s, even early 2000s. Um, but the way that I saw it was that if you've got a partner that has, one, money, uh, that has, you know major distribution so they can get your records everywhere that can you know put put dollars behind marketing that can have a team that goes to radio that can make good videos like we I wanted stuff from day one like I knew that partnering with a with a big record company was always um was always a goal did I think that we'd ever sell it um I was always open to the idea um it wasn't like it wasn't like the goal from the beginning to sell it. The goal was to become, you know, to, to create a successful label and, and launch successful careers for artists. But um, I always knew that. I, I don't know. It's weird, but I never, I never faltered on the idea that we were going to be successful. I always knew it was kind of like, you know, a day away.
0: So if you're, if someone's listening to this podcast right now and has some type of company in whatever area they're looking to pursue and they're struggling with that feeling of I'm never going to be successful or what is the end goal here, even though they're waking up every single day and pursuing this mission, what advice do you have for them?
1: I mean, you know, I I think there's a couple of things here. um, I think one of them was we were so naive because we had no experience within that industry, which I think helped us. Um, I think that helped us be like, no, why can't this happen? Why can't we do this? Why couldn't, why couldn't this deal happen? Why, why wouldn't this be successful? So I think that kind of just kind of stubbornness almost um, kept us going. The other thing that I noticed was at a very young age, and this I think has helped me throughout my life, but I, I got to learn it like before my 18th birthday was that I knew that I was never the smartest person in the room, definitely not the most talented, um, But what I realized was everything was a lot less competitive than you think. So like, you know, a lot of people, like you said, a lot of people have ideas, but they don't take that next step next year and just start something. And because like, oh, someone's already doing this or someone's going to do it better or whatever reason they have. But once I actually got started, I realized like, hey, no one else is really doing this. And if people are doing it, they're not doing it the way that i want to do it. So we kind of just, I just kind of figured out that. One, I can kind of do whatever I want, um, to, you know, within within limits, and I can kind of shape this thing the way I want it to be shaped, and that was what made it unique, and that's what kind of gave us this advantage um, out there in the market, and that's that's ultimately why it kind of worked. And then, as far as like dealing with you know the, the pressures and, and stresses and the things that you think you're going to like kill your business every day, because we definitely went through that, you know, like specifically around capital. Um, I don't know, just just, just knowing that we were, we were on a path and having these little victories, even though they weren't like necessarily amounting to big cash windfalls at the time, you could feel that momentum. And I think it was that momentum that kept me going. I remember one specific story. My my co-founder, who was a few years older than me, uh, he went to our school, but he was a few years older. He was kind of feeling the crunch a little bit more. Like his parents were like, you know, you've got to move out of home. <laughs> and um, Get a real job and you know had a girlfriend that he wanted to like buy nice stuff for and like mark and myself didn't have any of that stuff um but he was kind of like you know i i think if this doesn't this doesn't work in the next three months i think i want I'll, i want to leave the company and to me i just thought that was like the craziest thought because was like you, you do realize what's happening like we've got all this momentum behind us like we're, we're doing really well it just hasn't hasn't transitioned yet into like the financial side but it will because we've just got to but we've got to keep pushing and I've, I've always had that belief if you're doing something that's good and you're doing something that's cool and you can see it's working like the money will come but you shouldn't just do it for the money you know what I mean I've always, oh, I've yeah. always, I've always had that that mentality and I was like if you want to if you want to leave like we'll we'll buy you out because I've I had full belief I knew that what was what was coming was around the corner and six months later you know one of our one of our bands went gold um, and we had a deal. We had a deal on the table from EMI to to buy half our label and to fund our entire operation. So that was like you know when when that deal came through because they bought half first and they bought the other half later. Um, that was like they paid us like salaries which were ridiculous. We'd never been on a salary in our life, and you know all of a sudden we're like you know teenagers on six-figure salaries. Um, they were paying. They paid it for us to like fly internationally to do deals. They paid our office overhead. We had proper recording budgets, like all this stuff that we dreamed of, you know, and, and six months prior, he was he was ready to walk out. But like, that was five years of work had gone into building to that point. You know what I mean? So I don't know. The momentum thing for me is like, if you're feeling that momentum, you're feeling like you're on a track, but you might not be seeing like massive results, I, I think you just got to keep going.
0: And what if you, what if you, yeah, after that five years, what if you weren't seeing those results? I think that's my question for you is like, how did you... And I think that's something that people wonder a lot about entrepreneurs. How did you keep up that momentum and that excitement, even in the moments, I bet you must've had some moments where you were frustrated or wondering, how did you keep yourself so excited? Was it just overall the idea or the possibility?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, I think I just, I, I could see what it could become and what I saw, what it could become, um, had me more excited than afraid. hmm there was no guarantee, obviously. There's never, guarantee. There's never a guarantee in anything. But I think, I don't know. I think I'm also just like kind of this eternal optimist. Um, I would say as I got older, you know, if I'm I'm not as blind to mm-hmm. that, like whereas in if I'm working on something and I'm constantly hitting my head against the wall and I'm not feeling like it's gaining any traction or gaining any momentum, I'm like, I now know kind of like there are, there are times when, you know, you've either you got you to shift out or pivot or, or whatever it is. Um, but when I was in that that era, um, I just I was just so like I had just had tunnel vision.
0: There's something so appealing about being naive, and I always say this to other aspiring entrepreneurs: is going into something not knowing what's going to happen is the most exciting point. And I think a lot of people overlook and get so deep into like they need a super proper business plan and da da da. And and you and I have done quite the opposite. And sometimes that's just how it works and those business plans will come. But when you are just really mulling over an idea, you don't always need a business plan because in reality that can really uh, (laughs) not inspire you enough to do it. Like it can actually scare you off to then where you go back to working a corporate job or whatnot. So, uh, so certainly if you have the idea, write it down and mull over it every day, but don't get too stressed out if you haven't launched a proper business plan uh, after having the idea. So then, so this mentorship program. So when you sell the label, then what happens over the next five, six, seven years?
1: Yeah. So I'll, I'll, again, try to do the, the truncated, the truncated version of it, but basically, so I sold the label. Um, I was kind of a bit burnt out on the music industry, as far as like working in it within and a label and, you know, looking for new bands and stuff. And I had seen this documentary, um, when I, was, when I was younger, called Dogtown and Z-Boys, which is kind of about like kind of the heyday of, and birth of skateboarding um, in, in California uh, that Stacey Peralta directed and, and Sean Penn narrated. And I saw that and I was like, damn, this documentary is so cool, but there's not one for like the music that I grew up on, which was kind of 90s punk rock. So I started my label in the year 2000, but you know I grew up listening to a lot of those 90s punk rock bands with you know Green Day and Blink-182 and No Effects and Pennywise and Rancid and these sorts of acts. Um, so I had this idea. I wanted to do something creative. I was kind of directing music videos um, for, for bands in my label. I'd actually shot um, a documentary for one of the bands on my label that was like nominated for an ARIA award, which is like the Australian equivalent of a Grammy. So I, I wanted to kind of flex my creative muscle. And I was also still in my early 20s. I was like, you know, 23 or something at the time. So I wanted to explore other things. So um, I ended up, you know finding some partners and and making this documentary called 1994, which was um, on kind of like the the birth of uh, an explosion of punk rock in the 90s. I interviewed all my favorite bands, which was incredible. Um, You know, I flew over to the States and got to interview like Green Day and Blink and um, Pennywise and Rancid, and then got introduced to Tony Hawk, uh, who narrated the film for us. And I got to hang out with him and that was just awesome. So I just had like, I was able to just like live out my childhood dreams, essentially. but the movie became a failure. It became my, my first big failure, actually, because we I'd shot the film and we'd edited it and all this stuff. But um, it was also at the, the the rock bottom of the music industry making money. It's like no one was buying records anymore. You know, the music and, and streaming services hadn't come in yet. So we couldn't actually license. We didn't have the budget to license any of the music that was going to be in the documentary. So that, that was my first big failure. You know, we I'd, I'd personally invested, like, uh, you know, six figures of my, of my own money into the into the project, and yeah, I just hadn't really dealt with a big failure at the time. So, basically, I was living in LA when I was making that documentary. I had to kind of put my tail between my legs and, and go back to Australia and figure out what my next move was going to be. So, ended up um, basically starting like a digital agency um, in I think it was like 2010, 2011, working with uh, major record companies in Australia and helping their market bands. Um, and artists Um, and that ended up turning into us working with like you know brands like Samsung and PlayStation and GoPro and kind of did that for a little while but I knew that I knew that agency stuff wasn't what I wanted to do it was just something I had to do to figure out what was going to be my next kind of passion project my next thing I really wanted to build and that that turned into a company called Locals uh, which was like I mentioned earlier uh, essentially it was Airbnb experiences before Airbnb experiences so basically it was the idea was like, if you came to say Australia, but you didn't want to do any like touristy stuff and you, you surfed, you could go surfing with a pro surfer or you could go skate with a pro skater. And these were people that I knew in my network and basically you'd pay. And this is this was an idea that I had. So launched that, um, then I was like, I really want to get back to the US because that's the market I want to be in. So ended up, we launched that in Australia for a year in a beta, moved to, moved to the US. And within kind of like the first month of me being here in 2016, um, and I had these kind of experiences with some pro surfers and skaters and chefs and um, photographers and, and all this sort of stuff. Basically, landed two corporate clients, which at the time, which were Salesforce and Uber. And Salesforce bought an experience for us to surf with um, a pro surfer called Taylor Knox. And they did that as um, an incentive for their sales team. Hey, you hit these sales targets, you will win this experience. You know, and we're like, cool. So we sold them this experience, and we were able to sell them the experience at a, a price you know, a lot higher than we were kind of selling to consumers for. And then Uber came along and were like, we want to do some of these experiences for team building. So for the executive team down here in Southern California. And basically, this is kind of how this led into Creative Futures. Um, we basically just stopped doing any consumer experiences. Airbnb was about a year away from launching their experiences platform. And we were just working with companies like Uber Salesforce, WeWork, PayPal, KPMG, et cetera. Putting on these experiences and that'd that pay us money, we'd go and get the talent and, and put this experience on. Um, but what we would do is if, and this is actually this is actually how Creative Futures was uh, started, we would, we would bring nonprofits into these experiences. So for example, um, Uber was doing a farm to table cooking experience at um, an urban farming in Compton here in LA. And we partnered with an organization called A New Way of Life, which is a re-entry program for formerly incarcerated women. And we called them up and we said, hey, have you got any women that would want to come down and be part of this farm-to-table cooking experience uh, with some executives from Uber? And they're like, absolutely. So about six women came down. We had about 15 Uber executives. And everyone's like foraging food in the farm, cooking food with the chef and learning how to cook um, from the chef and then kind of eating food together and sharing stories. And it was just this incredible experience but when I thought about it, like, I thought about, you know, where's the value really going? Um, and the value is really going to Uber because their employees were kind of engaging with the community they wouldn't normally, thinking to pat themselves on the back and heading, you know, going back to their, you know, generally cushy lives. Um, where the women who have never had this experience before, have this incredible experience, but they wake up the next day um, and they're in the same position. They still can't find secure housing or find permanent work, you know, because they're formerly incarcerated. Uh, women specifically in, in this country and that to me was just kind of like you know there's a disconnect here if we're going to be working with these nonprofits um and, and these corporations i want there to be something more tangible that have an outcome not just make everyone feel happy and fuzzy for you know for a day i want there to be um yeah a tangible a tangible outcome and for me that was jobs and that was opportunity so one of the women that was at the at the event her name was Michelle a. She was five months out of prison she told me that her dream was to become a chef and I said, well, why don't you become a chef? And she's like, well, you know, people like me, we don't get to follow our dreams. I said, no, you, you should be able to. So um, basically on that day, we, we we put together a four-week traineeship for her with the chef that we had, Ella, um, where Michele got to go into a commercial kitchen, learn from the chef. And then at the end of those kind of four weeks, the chef would open up her um, network in the culinary space to help her find like opportunities and job interviews and stuff like that. And long story short, she goes through it, absolutely crushes it. And at the end of those four weeks, Ella's just like, I'm not introducing her to anybody. I'm going to hire her myself. And six months out of prison, Michelle, I now had a full-time job as a chef. I was like, this is really cool. But the one thing that she said to me that really resonated was she said, you know, Jai, this isn't just about getting a job because there are a lot of shitty, I don't know if I can swear, a lot of crappy jobs out there uh, for, for people like me. But this is, this is a career. This, this gives me um, purpose. This is something I'm passionate about. And we saw how it didn't just impact her, but it impacted her family. She had three kids. Um, and also the community, you know, the other women that were part of the program being you know, like, well, if Michelle, I can do this, I can do this too. And that was 2017. And that was kind of the, the birth of the birth of Creative Futures Collective. And basically we were doing that and plugging that into the locals. Um, at 2019, we kind of were running, essentially running two companies and decided that, you know, one, where where, where is the traction and, and where's the momentum and where's the future? And that was all really in Creative Futures Collective, because what we knew that we were building, even though at a really small scale, was we were kind of tapping into this talent pool of non-traditional talent, you know, non-traditional backgrounds that had been overlooked and ignored and forgotten, but had so much value and to, to offer, whether it's companies or to start their own companies or, or whatever it is. And we knew that was what we wanted to focus on. So yeah, basically, you know, in 2019, we went all in on Creative Futures Collective and we built out a, you know, a 12-class curriculum for, for our fellows, as we call them. Uh, we built up a mentor network with you know, people from everywhere, from Apple, Google, Netflix, CAA, Vice, et cetera, to, to mentor um, our fellows. And then we put together what we call a future ship, which is essentially guaranteed paid work experience. And in that first year, we were able to partner with LA Lakers. We are to partner with Spotify and the World Surf League. So our fellows we're able to get real world experience and put this on their resume. You know, I, I just did a, you know, a future ship with LA Lakers here are my references from Google and Apple. Um, And yeah, just kind of just went all in on that.
0: So to talk about mentorship, who have your mentors been in the past? Like who really has stood out to you as a mentor uh, that has really gotten you through a lot of critical times as a business owner?
1: Yeah. um, You know, I I, I talk about the importance of like long-term relationships a lot. one of my one of my mentors is is still my mentor today um he's also an investor in our company um his name is bill silver i met him when i was like 17 or 18 years old he's still in the music industry um but was in the music industry back then managing a band called unwritten law that i wanted to sign um for my record label um basically I, on that first trip to the US that I, I mentioned earlier, um, I met with him and I said, you know, I, I want to sign an under to Australia. They'd just been dropped by Interscope. And he's like, you know, um, we're signing with Atlantic, but if you ever want any tracks for a compilation, um, you know, happy to do that. So we took him up on that offer and we just remained friends, you know what I mean? It was just, it wasn't it wasn't this relationship where it was like, what can you do for me now? It wasn't just like, you know, I, I'm, I'm very like hesitant on, you know, just asking you know just asking for stuff all the time you've, you've got to give as well um but it's also just about building these long-term relationships and yeah just stay friends with him and when the documentary idea came along he was the first person I went to and he ended up becoming an executive producer on it he's he's who introduced uh, me to Tony Hawk and then when we launched um when we launched sorry my dogs okay but, <laughs> sorry. um when we launched uh, locals and then Creative Futures. You know, he, he he invested in the company, so um, he he's he's a huge mentor um, to me. And I remember when the label in Australia, we had um, one of the biggest managers in Australia um, become our mentor because of the, again all the hustle and the work that we were doing that wasn't being that wasn't being recognised. And he saw value in um because he he saw value in kind of being associated with these kind of like young kids that were coming up that had their had their ear to the ground and you know he was one of the big reasons why we even had that relationship with EMI um, and yeah just being able to like be, even just be associated with him started to get because we were still kids right so like people would take us seriously because he was the most successful music manager and even indie label owner in Australia so we were kind of fortunate and I and I learned then the importance of of having having mentors and if you really like lean into the relationships and it's, I think there's value on both sides for the mentor and the mentee. um, It can really, really accelerate your growth. I, we noticed that, like it took us four years to find him, but once we did, um, yeah, our growth just accelerated from there.
0: And so how can other people go about finding mentors? I know that you have your program and and with COVID it's been so difficult for people to, connect with people in person. So besides LinkedIn and messaging people on Instagram, what advice do you have looking back on how you've built this mentorship uh, you know, type of plan, but how you also got mentors before social media was such a big thing? What should people in their early 20s be doing right now to find mentors in the best way?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, you know, we, we, run, two, we run two programs. You obviously have your programs. So there's, there's a bunch of programs out there. That, you know are connecting young young creatives and young entrepreneurs with mentors. so there's and there's a ton of demand on the mentor side like mentors looking for opportunities um, to, to mentor young people. So like for example, you know we got connected through the Soho House program. so we we run that program for North America, Soho mentorship. Um, you know that's a, that's a great way to get get mentored by people in the specific vertical that you're looking to, to break into. There's obviously our Creative Futures program. Um, But I think one of the most important things is, you know, I I really believe in like, you know, if you just go and ask someone, hey, can you be my mentor? They might be like, "Uh, why? You know, I I really believe in like doing the work first. So if you're building something or you're working on something or you're super talented or whatever it is that you're looking to do, I think you just got to keep doing that. You just got to keep working. And you just got to keep like push, putting it out there and putting yourself out there. And and I find that when those when those moments come, then you actually meet someone. You don't just go ask them, "Hey, can you be my mentor?" But just start building a relationship. Like start building a like you know how can you help them? How can you be of an assistance? And a lot of time, like I just I said, there is a demand for people with more experience, as we as we're seeing that 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 want to be mentors. But I think they also just want to kind of like. Know, kind of get behind someone or or get behind a project that personally they like, that they, you know, have, have, want to have a relationship with. So instead of being kind of like forceful about it and just being like, mentor me, mentor me, mentor me, see what you're doing and and what you're working on and and how important that could be and how fun that could be and how interesting that can be. You'll, you'll find those opportunities will come to you. Like with our, with with John Watson, who was the, the Australian guy I was mentioning, the music manager. We didn't approach him to mentor us. We invited him to a showcase that we were putting on where all of our bands were playing in one night and he, and he couldn't make it. But we, what we did is like, we basically sent letters like in the post, uh, these in, like, postcard invites to like every music industry person we could find there was a directory with everyone's address. And we sent to everyone. And you know, some people came to the show, but he actually, he couldn't come to the show. He ended up emailing us and just said, um, hey I can't I can't make it but thank you for the invite but I'd love to I'd love to catch up because I've heard you I've heard about you guys doing some cool stuff so we, a few weeks later we went to his office for a meeting and then started building this relationship so it wasn't like we were we were looking for um, for for a mentor in him um, but because we'd done all this work and it actually he'd already kind of heard of us because like I said these little wins these little momentum that made him be like yeah I can with my kind of like you know, with my backing and and my mentorship and my assistance, I can kind of like, I can elevate you. Um, so that's why I kind of got, I lean on that. It's really important, I think, that people are also kind of like doing the work first. That will attract people to want to kind of get behind you.
0: Do you think that you should be cold messaging people on social media platforms like LinkedIn and whatnot, or is the better way to do it really to talk to people in person?
1: I think I think either can work. I've heard I've heard of of both ways working. But I think like, again, like if you're cold messaging someone, what are you cold messaging them with? Right? If you're just cold messaging someone on LinkedIn or Instagram, like, hey, uh, I really look up to you. Will you mentor me? Or will you, you know, can we have a chat? Like a lot of people are busy and we'll just be like, nah. Right? Um, some people are like super uh, open with their time. and be like, yeah, let's, let's set something up. So it can never hurt to cold email anyone. You've got, you've literally got nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. But, Going back to the doing the work thing, but if you cold email someone and you've got something to show them or something to say or something that's interesting or something that's bubbling, or just like it's like you're super talented, like that's what's gonna get them interested, like whether they, whether they look at it or not. And so many times, like I've done this where I've I've called, emailed people um, and three years later, you know, they they pay attention. But that's because for those three years, I was doing the work. Mm-hmm. And then with doing enough stuff to make them want to pay attention, you know, and I never take it personally, like, oh, no, you ignored me three years ago. <laughs> I'm not, you know, not at all. You don't, you don't take it personally. But I just believe that, yes, there are so many avenues now to reach out, take them, but have something to show, have something that's going to make someone want to get behind, um, you know, helping you out.
0: Agreed. And, and that work and that hustle, people see that. I remember with this summit program that I launched, I had had three summits that I had pitched to UConn uh, every single year from like 2019 or 2018, maybe. <laughs> To um to 2020, and every year they said no, and finally I got one message on LinkedIn from the director at UConn who was like, "Okay, now I've seen what you're doing. Like, let's set a call." And it was almost kind of that walking away for a bit to then walk back into it that can really make people even more fascinated by you. Uh, So, what is what's your end goal? Like, where do you see yourself in the next five to ten years? Because you have done so much up to this point.
1: Yeah, I think you know it's a funny end goal. Um, I don't really know right like I don't I don't really know but I do know that where my passion is and and my passion is in kind of partnering with up-and-coming up-and-coming creatives and up-and-coming entrepreneurs up-and-coming trailblazers but specifically from communities that haven't had the opportunity like to be quite frank I'm not really that interested in in working with people that come from privilege that have had a lot of opportunities for them. Um, and it's probably because, you know, the chip on my shoulder and where I came from. Um, so I'm really, really interested as, as I kind of get older and kind of build out this this company is, yeah, where, how can how can I and how can we help create more opportunities for people that haven't had them? And whether that's helping people get jobs or connecting them with mentors or, you know, partnering with them on their, their projects, whether it's music or film or television or companies. Um, and then, and then eventually kind of like investing, investing and supporting these kind of young, young up and coming trailblazers that are going to create, you know, cr- create, create things for markets that didn't even exist yet. So I think for me going, going older, it's about how I can be supportive and just keep opening up opportunities and, and seeing this next generation kind of thrive. That, that's what I, that's what I get excited by.
0: And where can everyone find out more about the program or get involved with getting a mentor or just Creative Futures in general?
1: Yeah, so I mean, probably just the the websites um, and and Instagram are where we're most active. So, you know, the website is creativefuturescollective.com. So we run two programs a year. Um, We're nationwide now. Um, And then the Soho House program, uh, if you go to sohohouse.com and find their mentorship program, uh, you're able to apply. And we're running, we're running seven programs for Soho House this year. So we're running programs in LA, New York, Chicago, Toronto, Austin, Miami, and Nashville. Um, so they're aimed at under 27s. We, we take 25 mentors, 25 mentees. It's a 16-week program and everyone that gets into it, uh, the mentees, when they get selected, um, they get a three-year membership to Soho House. So um, that's, they're the two ways that you can find us and kind of um, engage with us. And then Instagram, uh, you know, just at Creative Futures Collective.
0: Thank you so, so much for being on the podcast today. It was fabulous, fabulous to um to chat with you. And if you have one last piece of advice for any person looking to su- pursue any type of opportunity, what would you tell them?
1: Um, I would say just, it's going to sound kind of cheesy and, and, and Nike-like, but just do it. Um, you mentioned the people with business plans and all that sort of stuff. You don't know your business until you've started it so I think you've just got to get going you've just got to start something because what like even with creative futures it evolved out of locals um creative futures wasn't an idea it wasn't an idea that I had um I only got to that idea we only got to that idea because we were doing all this other stuff and it kind of led us down a path and so to me it's like if you've got an idea about something just start um start it today start doing it doesn't doesn't need to cost you anything really and you can figure out what it's going to be and then you can figure out if it's something you want to do um uh, but most likely once you get started you kind of get addicted to it I know I get addicted do you get addicted you get addicted to like the momentum
0: yes I get addicted yeah. to the momentum and I honestly at this point I'm even kind of addicted to the rejection
1: okay that's interesting
0: I, th- I think that the rejection is what makes me want it more
1: yep yep and I, I think
0: Yeah. And I think that it's hard to, it's hard to, to not want things more, obviously, when someone tells, you no, because like you said, you know, throughout this whole podcast, if you believe as much in your idea and what you're building, then what other people are doing or, you know, other mentors and whatnot, it it really doesn't matter. What matters is how much you are willing to sacrifice and to work to get to where you want to be.
1: Yep. Absolutely. um,
0: so, yeah. So, well, thank you so much. I am <laughs> so excited about, uh, about being a part of this program with SO House. For those who are interested in, in, in the website, as well as what they're building with Soho House, certainly go to the website. I know that you have to be a member to, to be a part of this particular integration with SO House, but certainly if you're in any major city or even looking to just be a part of it, uh, he said that there's ways to get involved that don't cost anything. So I certainly would advise all of you checking that out online. And aside from that, I can't wait to meet so many of you at the summit this week and head to befearlesssummit.org to figure out everything that you need to know about arrival times and where to go for your panel and if you got matched with a mentor. So I will see you guys next week for a new episode of The New Unfiltered.